Well, when I talk about the book of Revelation being hard to understand, this is the passage I like to use. The dragon who is sitting at the feet of the woman about to give birth, ready to eat her baby. We all totally get what that means, right? It's clear as crystal to us. Clearly, it's, it's easy. Now, this, this is probably the most highly symbolic passage in the book of Revelation, and the most obviously so. And I think that in the broad brushstrokes, it's not too difficult to follow along with what's happening. It's made up of three scenes. Uh, there are two scenes at the beginning and at the end that are the story of the dragon and the woman. And then in the middle is the scene of Satan's war with Michael in heaven and is being cast out. Now, this is uh, possibly a sort of chiasm which is uh, a way that Jewish thought often worked. You take two similar ideas or two similar sayings and you put them on the outside and then you put the most important thing in the middle. And it's a way of emphasizing something significant. So in this case, again, the two stories of the woman and the dragon are outside bit. And the center, those are the buns, so to speak. But the center, where the patty is, that's the good stuff, right? You don't just grab the bun and eat it. You might eat the patty by itself if you had to. As a matter of fact, once uh, Kayla and I, in 2009, went to uh, England. We took a two-week trip uh, starting in Edinburgh, which of course is actually Scotland. And we went all the way down to Paris over the course of two weeks. And we'd been there a long time. And uh, in England, everything kind of seems like America, except for these little differences that remind you that I'm in a totally different place. And by the time we got to Paris, I was like, I just want a cheeseburger. This is back when I didn't know I was allergic to beef. I just want a cheeseburger. So we went into this little French cafe, and they had a cheeseburger on their menu. And I was so excited. I was just pumped. It was cheeseburger and fries. It's like so a little bit of America after two weeks, a little bit at home after two weeks of being away. So they brought out our food, and I said, what is this? Because there was no bun. It was just the burger patty and the cheese, and it was still pretty good. So it wasn't American enough, but that's the important thing. And the same thing here. The most important part of this story is what comes in the middle. There are three different things I want to talk about out of this passage this morning. The first two are going to go pretty quickly. And the third one is the cheeseburger. It's the, the meat and the cheese that we really need to spend some time on. So first, what we see in Revelation chapter 12 is that finally, finally, the driver of all the conflict, the true enemy, is revealed. And it's Satan himself. Satan has mounted a mighty rebellion to oppose God's purposes and plans, which find their fulfillment in the life of Jesus. That's what verses 1 to 6 are about. The rebellion has failed, as Satan wasn't able to stop that child. That child, of course, is Jesus Christ. We know this in part because it says that the child who is supposed to be born will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And this is a quotation out of Psalm 2, and the book of Revelation has already said that the one in Psalm 2 who rules the nations with the rod of iron is Jesus Christ himself. And that, of course, makes the woman in the story the church. 
But not just the church, actually God's people through all of the ages. We can say at least from Abraham all the way to the very end when Jesus shall come back. And here a moment in the church's history, in God's people's history, is being brought out. It's the birth of Jesus Christ and then the ascension of Jesus Christ. He came, he did his work, Satan was unable to stop him. And now he has ascended to heaven where that work is done. But surely we don't really believe in Satan, right? I mean, this is the 21st century. We live in America. we got science and all of these different tools at our disposal. We don't really believe that the world is run by these spiritual beings locked in cosmic conflict, do we? But I think that when we start talking and thinking in that sort of way, oh, you know, we're, we're too sophisticated to believe in Satan anymore, that really we're already giving the lie See, we haven't given a good reason. Rudolf Bultmann in the 20th century, in the early 20th century, said, we can't keep believing all of these miracle stories about Jesus. We live in the age of the electric light bulb. Come on, guys. But it's 100 years later, and we still believe in the miracles of Jesus Christ. Not because uh, science has disproved them, not because we're too smart to believe in them, but because as Christians, we've experienced the truth of them for ourselves. Because as Christians, we've experienced similar sorts of things happening in our lives. Because, frankly, it's not only really smart people who don't believe in God, it's also really smart people who do believe in God. Every once in a while, uh, I was talking to Dee about this this week, uh, there was a, a movement a num- several years ago, a decade or two ago, it was the rise of the new atheists. And uh, you might have heard of some of them, like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or some of these other guys. Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God delusion. And uh, he was talking about how it's perfectly unreasonable to believe in God. He said, this is where D and I started talking, that you might as well just believe in the flying spaghetti monster as in the God of the Bible. And uh, it's interesting because Richard Dawkins, God bless him, is a molecular biologist, if I'm remembering this correctly. And yet his book was really philosophy, and he's not a very good philosopher. Because, see, Christians throughout the years have been exploring these questions. Richard Dawkins wasn't the first person to think of them. He was engaged in what we might call the snobbery of the present or chronological snobbery. C.S. Lewis coined this time for us. And it's the idea that just because ideas are old, they're dumb and wrong. And they're not worth exploring. But there are a lot of old ideas that we take for granted in our lives, aren't there? Like... Pleasure is generally preferable to pain. People have believed this for a long time. It's not wrong just because it's old. And a lot of people have been creating sophisticated arguments for the existence of God for a long time, using philosophy, using science, using our own experience. It's short-sighted and it's really just arrogant to say only unreasonable people believe in these spiritual sorts of things. Uh, when I went to Turkey, uh, when I was in seminary, uh, I remember I, we, we rode on a bus all throughout uh, the south of Turkey from uh, Syria up to Greece, and it was a really neat trip. And uh, it took me a little while because I'm an incredibly unobservant person, but I noticed that, uh, eventually I noticed that when you enter the door of the bus in Turkey, does, can anyone guess what you see right there next to the door? The evil eye. 
evil eye. There's a sticker of you know, an, an eyeball looking in a certain way. I, I can't remember exactly what it looks like. But then I started looking around Turkey, and I noticed it was everywhere, and it was especially over doors everywhere. Because in Turkey, there is a widespread belief that there are evil spirits all around us, and the evil eye is a means of warding them off. See, in America, we think about those sorts of things. We say, that's crazy. But in the majority of the world, people say, that's not crazy, that's life. Life is a place where there are spirits, both good and evil, at work all the time and every day. I've experienced it in my own life. Uh, I've shared with the church before that after, I don't think I'd even been here a year, and I was driving to the church. Yeah, I hadn't been here for a year because we weren't in the manse yet. And I was driving to church on a Sunday morning getting ready to preach, and I said, God, I, I can't do it this morning. I am so weighed down. I am so depressed. I can't come and preach. And I heard the Holy Spirit saying something in my heart, saying, Ian, you need to, you need to pray, and you need to pray specifically. You need, you need to tell Satan to go away this morning. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure God doesn't say, tell Satan to go away. But that's what I remember. And, and so I started to pray, and I said, okay, if there is any, like, I'm not really comfortable with this, you know, to be perfectly honest, but I'm a child of God. I belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has paid the cost of my sin. I am a son of God, and so in the power that Jesus has given me in his name, Satan and any of you demons, get out of my life, leave me alone. And I felt the cloud lift off me in that moment, which was way more terrifying than the few moments before. Because it was really Satan. It was really a demonic force that was oppressing me. And they had noticed me. And they knew where I was. And they cared about how I was living my life. Uh, a missionary friend of mine, uh, actually a, a friend, or uh, the father of a friend of mine who was a, a missionary in the Philippines for many years, talked about one night being asleep in bed. And they were at a uh, an especially critical phase in their ministry. And he woke up in the middle of the night and, and he felt a presence choking him to death, and he couldn't breathe, and he couldn't speak. And in his mind, he started calling out to the Lord, and finally got the words out, in Jesus' name, you know, whatever spirit is oppressing me, you need to leave. And at that moment, the choking stopped. If you go into the rest of the world, you see people really believe in these things. It's us who are deluded in thinking that these are are just folk tales and folklore. In our own experience, and I bet a number of you out there have experienced this as well, there are spiritual forces of evil at work around us and in our lives. The true enemy at this point is revealed, and this is really important because the people that John is writing to, who are suffering persecution at the hands of local government authorities, who are suffering persecution at the hands of their neighbors, they want to lash out at their neighbors, and they want to replace the governing authorities if they can. Does this sound familiar to anybody here? Do you feel, you know, the problem in my life is you pointing to that person who's driving you crazy. The problem with our country is you pointing at Congress or pointing at the president or pointing at the court or wherever you want to point. And God is pulling the curtain back here and he's saying, those people, I'm not saying they're not cooperating with the problem, but they are not the problem. The problem is the spiritual power that is behind them. The problem is that Caesar is being led by Satan. The problem is that Satan is making war against you. 
That's the real problem. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Our true struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of darkness in the heavenly places. And then he lays out the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes that are fitted with readiness by the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation. He says, these are the weapons with which you will fight. See, it matters that we can clearly identify our enemy because then we know how to fight back. And if we fight back on the terms of the world, right, if we fight back by saying, if we just got new people in those positions, if my neighbor would just move out and someone new would move in, then we're going to be disappointed over and over and over again because our real battle is not against flesh and blood. Not only this, but if we think our real battle is against flesh and blood, we will not share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Because we don't, they're the problem. They're the enemy. And we need to get rid of them in order for things to be better. Or maybe, maybe which is only very slightly better if it's better at all, we need to beat the pants off of them. We need to win! Right? But see, God's not interested in the immediate victory. God's not interested in whether or not you won the argument. God's interested in rescuing people from the clutches of the true oppressor, the one to whose kingdom we used to belong, the kingdom of darkness. And if we understand who the real enemy is, instead of trying to banish people out of our lives, we're going to offer them the rescue of Jesus Christ so that they don't have to hurt in those ways anymore either. The true enemy is revealed in his defeat. It's Satan. And then the true reason, so that was the first point, the true reason for persecution and suffering is made clear. And this is our second point. See, God's people from Abraham to the parousia, to Christ's return, is what that word parousia means, are the vehicle through which God's victory comes. As a result, God's people have experienced birth pains leading to the birth of Jesus, fighting to stay faithful, fighting to maintain their identity amidst independence and amidst being conquered, fighting to maintain their faithfulness against temptation to go worship anyone else because Satan is trying to take God's planet and throw it off the rails. But he wasn't able to do it because Jesus is born and he is he has lived, he has died, he has risen again, he has won the battle, and now Satan continues to fight against God's people because it's the best he can do. It's the rage of Satan at his defeat because Satan desires to stop what God is doing through you. He desires for each and every one of us to continue to think that the real enemy is our neighbor or that politician or whoever else it is so that we won't offer Jesus to them. Because that's really how Satan gets beaten is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're not strong enough to oppose him on our own. Remember my ride to the church where I'm, I'm saying, I'm, for weeks I'm under this cloud and I'm feeling awful and I try all these things, right? I try doing my favorite stuff. I try eating my favorite food. I try going to my friends and my family and my relatives and saying, encourage me. And none of it, none of it changes my circumstances. And yet when I go to God and I claim his power, Satan is gone at that same moment. At that same moment. Satan desires to stop what God is doing through you. He desires to stop the pastor from preaching a good sermon. 
from loving his people. He desires to stop you from showing the love of Jesus Christ to the people that are around you. He desires to stop the church from reaching out to the community. He desire, and he does it in all sorts of different ways. He oppresses God's people in all sorts of different ways, through discouragement, through doubt, through fear, through dissension, through arguing. Have you experienced any of these? Have you found them happening in the church and sometimes with a greater urgency in the church? And when those things happen, the answer is not to separate and run away, except in very extreme cases. That time does come but rather to seek reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is much harder and is much, much better. The funny thing about life is that wherever you go, there you are, right? And I think sometimes we go from place to place looking for satisfaction, looking for joy, looking for a better circumstance that we had before. What we often find is wherever you go, there you are. I changed my circumstances, but my circumstances are still the same. You know, I left those people behind that I had conflict with, but I seem to still be having conflict. And it's both because we're very quick to look at other people and say, this is all your fault. And sometimes, and we've been going through this recently as a family, sometimes we look at other people and we say, this legitimately is largely your fault, and yet there's not a lot of healing that comes from this is your fault. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, stick around, but don't give up. He says, keep on going. And you know what often the best, most meaningful relationships you'll have in your life? When I was in high school, uh, I had a, a friend, somebody I really looked up to, someone I really appreciated, and, uh, and someone I hero-worshipped, for sure. And when I went to college, and I kind of you know, discovered myself in a new way, uh, that sounds really gross to say, very like modern, but you know, I, I figured out more of who I was, and I figured out that I was okay. I called up this friend, and I said, hey, listen, um, you have been treating me like your ministry. And I'm worth more than that. Right? I, I, I've come to recognize we don't have a healthy friendship. And he said back to me, you've been hero-worshipping me, and I don't know what to do with that. And I said, oh, gosh, you're right. I said, well, what, what are we going to do? I said, well, let's, let's figure it out. Let's do it. He was the best man in my wedding. He's one of my very best friends still today. Because instead of, man, you stink and you broke this relationship, so I'm getting out of here. And instead of hearing you know, back, well, you stink too, <laughs> and you broke this relationship just as much as I did, and then everyone giving up and saying it's not worth it, we stuck it out. And we have the sort of relationship where we can drop into each other's lives at any point, at any time, and it's good to see each other. And we reconnect. And you know, we, we might not talk for a year or two, and then we get together, and it's like we never left. See, Satan desires to stop what God is doing through you. The question is, will we let him? Or will we follow the way of Jesus Christ? Satan desires to hurt you because he is raging over his defeat. 
You ever heard the saying, misery loves company? Well, yeah, that's all that's happening here. I lost, so I'm going to make as many other people lose as I possibly can. When I was a kid, uh, I was playing soccer, rec soccer, and uh, uh, man, my team, every year we'd play this other team, Kirkland United, and they'd beat the pants off of us every year. We hated it. Like We were a good team. As a matter of fact, we went to the state uh, tournament one year because we, we won our, our region, but man, we could never beat Kirkland United. And so we're playing this game, and we're losing again to Kirkland United. I'm so angry, and I'm so frustrated, and I decided I'm going to take everyone else down with me. And so there is this kid. I knew my team was going to lose, but I was playing defense, and the kid you know, next to me was playing offense on the other team. I was like, I'm better than him. I'm going to shut him down all game. And not only that, I'm going to trash talk the snot out of him. And so I was just mean and cruel the whole game long. Because what? Because misery loves company. There's a reason I don't play soccer anymore. <laughs> I wasn't always very Christian when I was doing it. Actually, God healed that in my life too. I can play soccer now without yelling at anyone but the ref. I'm still working on it. <laughs> Satan desires to hurt you because he's raging over his defeat. You're in the crosshairs, not because of anything that you've done, but because he is defeated and he hates it. But there is hope. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome your persecutors. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that leads to our final point this morning, which we're out of time for. <laughs> but let me, let me just leave you at the beginning. And we'll come back to this in a couple of weeks. See, the true reason persecution and suffering don't have to be feared, are in, in the burger part of this passage, in the center of it. God's people triumph over the rage of Satan because God has already won. We're going to see that in a few ways. Satan is not stronger than God. Michael, the angel, leads the forces of heaven and defeats Satan and casts him out. Because God gives his people special protection. Uh, we heard the woman is taken away into the wilderness for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years, which you might remember from weeks before. It's meant to symbolize the age of the church under persecution from beginning to end, from day one, from Pentecost, all the way until the time when Jesus will return. God gives special protection to his people by giving them a place of protection by taking us out of Satan's reach, by nourishing us in the Holy Spirit. And then Satan can no longer accuse us. Uh, that word Satan is actually, it can be translated out of Hebrew, hasatan, as the accuser. The word devil comes uh, from the Greek uh, diablos, and it, which sounds very much like the Spanish, right? But diablos in Greek, and it means the slanderer and the enemy. Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Accuser and slanderer. Satan can no longer accuse us. We'll see why next week. And then whatever Satan sends, God is stronger and he provides protection. Okay, we're going to come to the rest of that next week. So let me just... Remind us where we've been this morning. The true enemy is revealed to us. It is not our neighbor. 
It's not the politician. It's not even the systems that are set up in the world, but the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly places personified in Satan. The true reason for our persecution and suffering is made clear. It's not because God's lost sight of us. It's not because God hates us. It's not because God can't save us out of it. But it's because Satan is raging. He has been cast out of heaven, the text tells us. And he is going to be cast out of the earth as well. And we don't have to fear it. We'll find out why. In two weeks. In two weeks.